I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to, to Ruth. Uh, we're going to be picking up in chapter 4. And remember these uh, three tiny little pages in a thousand page book. So what's the deal with the story? Why is this an important story? Why is it even included in the Bible? How did it even find itself in there? And so we, we're reading through this and we're journeying together uh, through this book. And just to kind of to set the stage for you, kind of where we are in the story. If you remember, uh, in the first uh, verse of the first chapter, it says, uh, in the days when the judges ruled the land, there was a, there was a famine. And so we remember that in the history of the nation of Israel, this is after they had been given the Ten Commandments and after they had been uh, asked or commanded to go into the Promised Land. Uh, remember, the people that were living in the Promised Land when the people of God came in were a very paganistic culture, and so, so God wanted them to drive those people out uh, to get rid of them because he was concerned that if the, the people of God went into this place with these other folks, that they would fall into the trap of worshiping their idols and intermarrying with them and to become essentially like the other culture. They would not be a distinct people anymore. And God was right. That's exactly what happened. They, they moved into this new land and they began to connect and to, and to follow the other gods. And what would happen is they would become then enslaved by those gods and those peoples and they would suffer military defeat and they'd suffer this kind of enslavement. And so they would cry out to God. They would say, God, help us, free us, give us victory. And so God would raise up a judge, a mighty military leader, and also a person that would encourage them to, be, to rebound and to uh, reconsider their faith. And then they would... Uh, had some kind of success but then of course they would fall back into the old ways and then they would experience defeat again and they would cry out but each time it got worse and worse and worse and it says a number of times in the book of Judges that in those days everyone did what was right in their own eyes people did what they wanted to do they weren't as concerned with God's law Uh, they weren't concerned about following the Lord faithfully They did what was right in their own eyes. And so maybe as a way of judging this land because of the disobedience, God allows for a famine to exist. And so uh, because of the famine in the promised land in Bethlehem, uh, in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, there is no bread. And so Elimelech and his wife Naomi go to Moab, which is the people who are despised by the Israelites. Uh, They go there to try to find a life. And, And Elimelech allows his sons to intermarry with some Moabite women. And then what happens when they're in Moabite is Elimelech and both of his sons, Mahlon and Kilion, both die. And so they're left three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And we see this wonderful act of, of kindness, of, of faithful, faithfulness, of loyalty that Ruth extends to Naomi because Naomi says, I have to go back to, to, the, to Judah, the land of Judah, the promised land, because she had heard that the Lord was visiting her people there. And she has nothing in Moab. And she says, Ruth, Ruth and Orpah, stay with your people, stay with your gods but I'm going to go back. But Ruth, knowing that she has no prospect for marriage, no prospect for a future, uh, she goes and cares for Naomi in the land of Judah. This wonderful act of kindness. And then while she is there, she's working diligently and faithfully. She is gleaning and and working hard. And there's provision for her to be able to have resources. And there she meets Boaz. And Boaz is a man of standing. He is a worthy man. He is a a person of character. In In a land, in a time when there aren't anybody... There's no one that is acting with character. Here we see Boaz as a man of standing. And so Ruth and Naomi have this relationship. And Naomi, last week we talked about, comes up with this plan. A divine appointment. Go down and meet with Boaz. Because he is a a close redeemer of ours. A near redeemer. Because in those days, a woman who was a widow didn't have any opportunity to either to own land or to provide for herself. So the way that God worked it out was that he would call upon a brother or an uncle or a near relative to marry that woman so that she could be provided for and that that the name of the deceased would carry on. 
And Boaz is just such a man. And so she goes and they have this encounter at the threshing floor. And there Boaz says, yes, I will, I will redeem you. And it's this wonderful story. But here we come to today because we learned last week that there's another closer relative, someone who is nearer, who has the first right of refusal to marry Ruth. So here we think there's this awesome, happy ending. Boaz and Ruth are going to be together forever, happily ever after. But then there's a nearer redeemer, someone that has the opportunity to marry Ruth right out from under Boaz. So here we get to this dramatic part of the story. Right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the other redeemer, said, I will redeem it. Let's just put the pause button on that right there. So what's going on in the story? Boaz goes down to the gate. In those days, the, the town gate was the place where any, any legal business uh, needed to happen. Any marriages that were arranged, any business deals, any transactions. If, that's what you, if you wanted to do a deal, you went down to the city gate and you gathered a certain number of elders. You needed to have 12. And so in this situation, we see that Boaz gathers 10 elders plus himself plus the other redeemer. There's a couple of interesting things for us to note here. Is that one that we see Boaz is really beginning to act. In first, in the second chapter, it was Ruth that was the one that was extending this kindness and acting. In chapter three, we see that Naomi is the one who has come, had experienced this transformation. She's gone from disobedient to bitter uh, to a person who is acting by faith. And in verse, in chapter four, we see then that, that Boaz is the one that is moving forward. And notice how many times in, this, in these verses, in the first verse we see that Boaz, just the word Boaz, in verse 1, his name appears three different times. But did you notice that we don't know the name of the other Redeemer? So Boaz goes down to the city gate, the town gate, and behold, it says, huh, there was the Redeemer. The other Redeemer just happened to come by at the right time. What a coincidence, huh? So funny that this book is all full of these coincidences, right? Now, sometimes people in the church don't like the word coincidence because they feel like it's chance, because we know this isn't chance, but a coincidence is an incident and an incident happening at the same time. It's a coincident. So, in a sense, it's a coincidence, right? But we know that God is planning these two incidents that are happening co- they're coexisting, coexisting coincidences. But is it chance? What is chance? Chance is this unknown and uh, predictable element that happens um, in happenings that seems to have no assignable cause. It's not luck, which is a force that's assumed to cause events that cannot be seen or controlled. It's providence. It's the providence of God. Providence literally means the foresight of God. 
And it denotes God's preserving and governing all things by secondary causes. Providence means that God is much more than an onlooker into history. You know, we've seen this a number of times all throughout the book. Remember when Ruth, when she was going down to to glean, and it says that she just happened to find herself in a field. And earlier in in chapter 2, it says that twice, is that she found herself in Boaz's field. And in in this first verse, it tells us that twice, that he was of the clan of Elimelech. Well, this is really important. He's a near redeemer already at the beginning of the book. And we, as we look back on it, we see all these things coming together. She just happened to go to a field where Boaz, her near redeemer, a man of standing, a worthy man, was. That's where his crops were. It just happened that way. It just so happened that when Naomi said, look, act by faith and trust me and do this, that when she went to the threshing floor, that she found the right spot where Boaz was in the middle of the night, and she lay down right by him, and no one else saw her, and they had this encounter and this opportunity. It just so happened. You see, all throughout the Scriptures, and especially in this book, that God's hand is working in every single event. You know, we live in a culture that has a lot of different worldviews, meaning there are different ways to see what goes on or to interpret what goes on in the world. And, and some people are deistic in that they believe that God created the world and He wound it up like a watch. And that since everything is already built into it, nothing changes. God never intervenes. He never in, intrudes. It's just it's going to be the way it is. It's, just, it's determined. The other extreme is ethical monism, where God controls everything, even my hand going up and down. God's controlling this in every way. It's so we're robots and we're absolved from any responsibility. Again, God determining everything. But the biblical view reveals that God created the universe and gives secondary causality to things. So that you and I have the freedom to make decisions through our wills, our minds, and our activities. And yet God is still sovereign. He is still working in and through all our decisions to bring about His purposes. You know, sometimes He intrudes into the scenes like with Jesus' miracles. And other times He used secondary causes like the faithfulness of a foreign woman. But God is sovereign. And isn't that important for us to remember in times of difficulty, times of struggle? You know, this idea that God's sovereign is wonderfully comforting. We can you know that, as Romans says, that God works together for all things for His good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. There isn't any event that happens in life that is not allowed by God. And yet, while God does not sanction sin, its existence in the world does not thwart God's purposes. Rather, even the brokenness of this world allows God to accomplish His purposes. If you can think about what's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of humankind, and I would submit to you that it's likely that a completely, perfectly innocent person was judged, condemned, crucified, that we can see any single awful event can still bring about redemption and glory and power in the world. If the worst thing that could ever ever happen is potentially the best thing that ever happened, isn't the worst thing that's going on in your life now potentially could become something that could be a wonderful and glorious thing when viewed through the lens of God's redemptive story in your life? You know, we've had a number of people just in the last two weeks in our own congregation that have died. 
We mourn with Will Stewart and his family and with the Vincent family. And many of you know other folks who are going through uh, equally tragic events. And we, it's hard to make sense of these kinds of things. And how do we interpret these things? There's real loss and sadness. Some of you are facing really difficult relational problems. Maybe your marriage is completely fractured or you're, you're a roommate with the other person that you said wedding vows to at one point. They're just roommates now. It's apathetic. Maybe you're wondering, you know, how's it all going to turn out? And I hope that you can go to that marriage uh, conference. I know I'm really looking forward to, to being there. You know, others of you are facing financial burdens. There are people in our church that have lost their jobs recently. Some have physical ailments or emotional distress that, that alters how you live every single day of your life. Some of our students, uh, we have a, a group of 8th graders from Woodland School. Many of you may be going, graduating from high school or from, uh, from tra- transferring to a different school this year. Be meeting new friends, facing new temptations, entering into new situations. These can be overwhelming and they can be difficult for us to, to figure out. And if we fail to see that God's hand is working in all of these things, then we can become like Naomi. Remember a couple of weeks ago, she had become embittered and she said, the Lord's hand is against me. Even though he was using her bad choices to bring about his redemption in her own life. He used her disobedience to partner her with Ruth, which ended up saving her. See, we have to trust that God is good and that he is working for our good, even in the midst of great difficulty. Even though what we face is hard, we have hope. We, we see that God will provide for us, just like he did for Ruth and for Naomi. And God is working purposefully to shape you in the midst of the struggle. And often it's the, it's the difficult thing that you're going through right now that God is using to help to create and to craft your character and to reveal Christ in you. Because it's in those moments of struggle and difficulty that you say, I can't do this. I'm not doing it right. My solutions aren't working. So God, I need to trust you. I need to look to your solutions and to, to follow you. What a great lesson for us as we see in these, the story of these characters. We also learn at the beginning of this text that there's a piece of uh, property that's available. We hadn't known anything about that. But what's interesting is that in, in Numbers 27, it says that a wife was not permitted to inherit her husband's property. And since Elimelech had no children, no brothers or uncles, the community gave Naomi the right to dispose of that land. But because Naomi couldn't farm it herself, she had to sell it. And so buying it was part of the Redeemer's obligation to Elimelech. And so this is the first time we've heard about it. It makes the drama a little bit more tense. We see that for the other Redeemer, he would take on the responsibility of caring for Ruth, but he also gained something valuable. He gained this land. There's some incentive for him to buy this. And that's why he says, I will redeem it. Verse 4 says, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, But in the, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So let's keep going to find out what happens. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the, land, from the hand of Naomi... You also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take right, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. I mean, there's this powerful moment here or the other Redeemer, this one who is never named. He, he rejects his opportunity. He rejects his obligation to redeem the land in the name of his relative because of the way that it might affect his own estate. He passes on the opportunity to prevent the disappearance of Elimelech's name, which is essentially the equivalent of social immortality. He lost it. We see that the other Redeemer is only willing to redeem the land when it's beneficial for him. At first he says he will. But then he realizes that obeying the law of God is going to cost him something. And thus he fails to meet his obligation. He knows ultimately that the land will add to his estate, but then he's got to care for Ruth. And if she has a son, then the, the son and Ruth and the land are both reckoned as malons. So in that case, the other redeemer will have to be have paid for Naomi for the land to support Ruth and her son. But none of that expense will be credited to his own estate. And worse yet, if he only has one son, then all his property will be given to Mahlon's name. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, the other redeemer will have to risk losing his own name. He might also endanger his name because he's marrying a Moabite woman. It says twice in this text, Ruth the Moabite. We're always re being reminded of that. Boaz mentions it carefully twice. I mean, it's understandable that this man would not take on the risk because it's going to cost him something, isn't it? But his risk was no greater than Boaz's risk. And we see here there's always a price to pay, even when we are willing to obey God's word. Often being faithful means sacrificing something. We give away something we would like to have so that others can benefit. The outsider, the weak, the poor. And this is where it really gets challenging. Often we're, we're called to make a sacrifice. And you know, if we don't do it, no one will really mind. I mean, do you think of, of those ten elders that were there with Boaz and the other Redeemer? Do you think they all said, man, whew, I can't believe you're not doing this. You're supposed to do it. Maybe they did. You know, most of the time, generally speaking, if you don't reach out to your neighbor, no one's going to complain to you about it. 
if you don't go work with uh, pregnant young moms, no one's going to complain to you about it. If you don't give sacrificially to ministry, no one's going to say you should be doing something else. If you don't go feed the hungry, no one will say, gosh, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, often, the challenge for us is to take upon ourselves to understand what does God's Word call us to do as the people of God for the benefit of our community and then to take, do the responsible thing even when it costs us something. It costs us time in front of our television or time with our own family or, or goods and resources that we could use do we give to someone else. But see, Boaz here has counted the cost and he is willing to pay the price. He's willing to be that redeemer. He's a great instructor for us. We see his character as a, as a worthy man who's not doing what's right in his own eyes. He's, he's acting with integrity when it would be just as easy to take care of himself. I mean, no one would fault him for not wanting to be married to a Moabite. But in looking at his life, we have to ask ourselves the questions. Are, are we willing to pay the price? Not for our own selves or the lives of our family, but, but for those who are in need. What, what are the choices that we're facing right now? You might be facing a decision that leaves you protecting yourself and providing more for yourself while having the option of using those resources for God. How is God speaking to you even now through the life of Boaz to encourage you to give in that way? You know, and I mentioned this earlier, but what's ironic is that the other Redeemer is never named in this story. I mean, isn't it funny that the selfish man who refused to memorialize the name of the deceased relatives who wanted to perpetuate his own name, is not named in the story. The one whose name is repeated over and over and over again is Boaz. He was the one who was willing to give up his name. And he is the one who is essentially famous now for all of history. His name lives on. We see as we examine the story, we really see in Boaz is, a, is what's called a type of Christ. Meaning that he represents Jesus in this story. Boaz foreshadows Christ who sacrificed himself and redeemed the church. You know, Boaz did more than his share as he sacrificed to give Naomi land and a son. Boaz gave the dead immortality, just like Jesus. By his sacrifice, he brought back those who have verged into death and debt and secured a Gentile bride. Boaz bought his, brought his bride into final rest. As Boaz brought Naomi and her family to rest, so David brings Israel to rest, and so Jesus gives the church ultimate, eternal rest. You see, in order for Jesus to be able to redeem us, He had to be related to us. God became flesh so He could die for us on the cross. He was born into this world in human flesh. He came our Redeemer. And what matchless love is there that Jesus would become this Redeemer? In order to qualify, the Redeemer had to be able to pay the redemption price. And not only did He have to be like us, He had to be able to pay the price. Ruth and Naomi were too poor to redeem themselves. But Boaz had everything necessary to set them free. When it comes to the redemption of sinners, nobody but Jesus Christ could pay the price. And He is the one who is wealthy enough to do so. Instead, the payment of money can never set sinners free but only through the shedding of Jesus' precious blood can that happen for you and I. And there was a third qualification. He had to be like them. He had to be able to pay the price, but he had to be willing to redeem. 
You see, the other redeemer was not willing to redeem Ruth, but Boaz was free to purchase both the property and a wife. The other redeemer had the motivation, had the money, but not the motivation. You see in Jesus his willingness. He lays down his life. No one can take it from him. He laid it down on his own accord for you. That you would respond. That you would experience that redemption. That it would change you. A story about a boy that once uh, made a made a sailboat. He had worked very diligently on it, and had tried to uh, to make it um, just perfect. And so he went out to to go sail it by the edge of the river, and he he let the line out and just watched it sail, and it was just it was perfect. You know, he was so excited that it was going. And he set the line out, and and uh, but it was in this little this little river, and he kind of sat back on the on the on the the shore to watch it. But somehow the rope became untangled and, and it just started drifting down and he lost it. And so he was running along the bank and he was trying to get it and he just, it just kept going and he couldn't get it. There was some kind of um, problem. He couldn't get to it. He lost it. This cherished thing that he had, he had created. Well, the next day he was walking through town and he saw in the store there was a sailboat behind the glass. And he went into the store uh, owner and he said, that's my sailboat. And he said, I'm sorry, it's not yours. Someone brought it in uh, this morning. It's for sale. You know, it's $20. So here's the thing that he had made. So he went home and he gathered all of his coins and all of his money. He scratched together everything that he could possibly get and he went down and he, and he took it to the store owner and he said, I want to buy that boat. And he did. And he grabbed the boat and he, he hugged it. He embraced it. He said, you're mine because I first made you and I bought you again. This is the story that for you and I that Jesus has made us. He's created us. He, he, before the beginning of time, He knew who we were going to be. And because we drifted down the river, because we got lost, we wandered away, He had to come and buy us once again. And He did that through His shed blood, His broken body, and His willingness to go to the cross. And because of that, then we've been paid for twice. That's what redemption is, is to buy back. It's to pay for. It's to uh, redeem and that's what Jesus has done for you if you're a believer in Him. And that's what the story is about. is God's redeeming love working through people. People who are just like you and I. Struggling to make a difference. Going through difficult challenges in the middle of life and not sure how things are going to turn out. But trusting in God and experiencing His redeeming love. Will you pray with me?